This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Monday, the 20th of February, and this is what we've got for you today. Going to start with a big debate we've been having about work from home versus work from the office. Amazon has been quite strident. The CEO, Andy Jassy, says, get back in the office at least three days a week. We've had an Instagram poll. I'll give you the results of that shortly. Also talking about Meta as well. They are selling blue ticks now on Facebook and Instagram. $12, would you pay it? We've been speaking to the social media star here at the Arabian Radio Network. Going to get the thoughts of Nyla Usher from hit 96.7 radio station. She has, get this, nearly 2 million followers on Instagram. What else have we got for you today? Well, we'll hear a little bit later on from Oliver Baxter. He's a workplace specialist, the founder and owner of Workplace Maven. His take on the work from home versus work from the office debate. Hint, he's a big fan of hybrid. Also talking real estate with Swapnil Pillai from Savills. New research about the prime residential market here in Dubai, still booming. And finally, football takeovers. Manchester United bids closed on Friday night. One investor from Qatar has formally bid to buy the club for upwards of $5 billion. Going to get the thoughts of the sports lawyer Andrew Moroni of Squire Patton Boggs. All that to come. First up there, let's dive straight into that big work from home versus work from office debate. Amazon's new policy of getting people back in the office from the 1st of May, just to recap, CEO Andy Jassy says we want you to spend most of your time in the office and at least three days a week. We've been asking you on our Instagram poll this morning, which is still open, three options, work from home, work from the office or hybrid in the lead, narrowly, is work from the office with 43% favouring that and then a split between hybrid and work from home as well. But the differences aren't huge. Let's get thoughts of one of our experts this morning. We've been speaking to Oliver Baxter. He is the founder and owner of Workplace Maven. It's a consultancy that specialises in workplace design. And we asked him, which would you have picked? I base my opinions on kind of what the data is saying right now. So I would go with hybrid. It seems to be the, the, the winning horse in the race so far. So if we compare data from year on year and quarter from quarter from, say, the Future Forum as an example, we see that actually people's preference for working fully remote or fully in office is actually coming down, and the majority of people seem to want to go with the hybrid solution. We also have a couple of misnomers, which has been highlighted in the uh, the Amazon statement around hybrid working, saying that uh, it might not necessarily be good for culture or for productivity, when actually the opposite is true. So if, again, if we look at the last quarter data from the Future Forum, we see a 57% spike in culture in those organizations that actually have hybrid, an 8% improvement in productivity. And if you actually have uh, schedule flexibility, then you get a 39% spike in productivity. So you've got to remember, hybrid isn't just about the where, it's also about the when you work. It's schedule and location we've got to take into consideration. Oliver describes the the Amazon version of this as what he calls structured hybrid. So there's some flexibility, but some rigidity as well. I love some of the quotes from Andy Jassy in this statement. You've been looking at it as well, haven't you, Brandy? One is, invention is often sloppy. It wanders and meanders and marinates. Serendipitous interactions help it. And there are more of those in person than virtually. It's almost poetic. Yeah, I mean, the bit that that stood out for me was that he sort of said empathetically that he understood for some employees that adjusting again to a new way of working would take some time. Uh, That new way of working that he's describing is coming to work. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Radical 
<laughs> upheaval in the workplace. Changes also at Meta as well, another big West Coast technology company. They are going to start charging for blue ticks. Meta Verified, they're calling it. It's going to cost $12 a month. They're launching it in your backyard, New Zealand and Australia. And Mark Zuckerberg says you're going to get a couple of things. First of all, you'd be verified and get a blue tick, fine. But you'll also get, or your account will get, increased visibility and reach. Now, you can buy one on Facebook or you can buy one on Instagram or both, but it's $12 each. Tom, you think people should pay for these things? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a service. It's a platform. Um, you use um, their back. Um, they are providing that service. They need to fund that service. Um, you are going to get a better service as a result of paying this sub- subscription. And therefore, like everything in the world, you've got to pay for it, haven't you? Yeah, but Ain't how... Ain't no such thing as a free lunch, people. The tricky thing is, is getting people to pay for stuff that up until now has been free. If something's always had a price value on it, you're used to that. When something's free, and in the case of Facebook and Instagram, you know, blue ticks, whatever, for years, all of a sudden you have to pay for it. That's when people balk. We've been getting the thoughts of one of our colleagues this morning, Nyla Usher, from our uh, sister station down the corridor here. He has 1.7 million followers on Instagram, as well as being presenter on The Breakfast Show at HIT. She's also a movie actress as well. This is what she had to say. We asked her, would you pay what's basically 500 dirhams a year for this service? I got my uh, uh, Instagram and Facebook verified back in 2017 or 16. I don't remember. But the reason why I got my page verified was I had a lot of fake pages in my name back in the time. So this is for, uh, you know, people who follow me to know that this is the actual page. Now, if you pay 500 dirhams and everybody gets verified, even a fake page could get verified. Uh, There's no value to a verified blue tick page. Right. In this case, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay five hundred to get verified. If anybody can get verified, I wouldn't. It's a fair point, isn't it? Don't want to be a member of a club which would have me almost. Yeah. Well, again, if it's a paid for thing rather than a you're important and special thing, it's not important and special, is it? And and in fact, that's what happened with Twitter, wasn't it? When Elon started charging for the blue tick, it led to more fake pages, Donald Trump impersonators, for example, rather than fewer fake. Pages, So I guess there are unintended consequences, but it's not just verification. It's also this increased visibility and reach is what they're promising. We don't quite know how that will work, but I guess it boosts you up the algorithm a little bit. You had people setting up fake accounts in your name recently, didn't you? I did. I had one a couple of months ago, um, which trying to hit it on the head was a bit of a game of whack-a-mole, to be perfectly honest. Um, I don't even know if it's actually still operating, but... No, I've taken it down. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> But it was fun while it lasted, wasn't it? Brilliant while it lasted. <laughs> oh, did we? Oh, how we laughed, Richard, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We're just revealing that it was us on her birthday. Uh, but yes, effectively, it was, a, it was a scam to reach out to people who followed me uh, to try and get them to hand over login details so that their account could be taken uh, charge of remotely. So they, they, fed, so they set up the fake account of the fake Brandy Scott account, but it wasn't targeting you, it was targeting your followers, wasn't yeah. it? That was the point. Yeah, 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 which, which it has. So whether or not me paying for a blue tick would make that easier or not, I mean, well, I guess it would, because I'd be the one with the blue tick and people um, who were suspicious about any other accounts could go and, and find it. Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because anything that's a free service, you're the product. So your data, your movements, anything else is is what's effectively being monetized in some way or other. My question is, if we stick the 
pay for the blue tick in place, if you get this premium subscription, does that mean that you get more privacy on the data front? I mean, you already do, actually, because one of the reasons that Meta and others are looking for new revenue streams is because Apple has changed how data can be used. Um, and it has eaten the lunches of some of the social networks. And also, it's interesting that this is $12 a month, unless you buy it through Apple, in which case it will be $15 a month. I mean, it's not a huge amount of difference, but symbolically, that, that's Instagram recognizing that, that there are, let's just say, issues on the Apple platform. It's not a criticism, it's just an observation. Yeah, I don't know. I would expect, I mean, what would you want for your money? I would want less commercialism and maybe more data protection. Is that what you're going to get? Yeah, potentially, yeah. If, if fewer adverts as well. As with the, the, the Netflix model, you can pay a premium and have ad-free. You can pay less. And you get some adverts as well. Or you can listen to Dubai 103.8 FM for free. We do play some adverts, but it is free at the point of delivery. And we are proud of that. Very quickly, Tom, a couple of energy stories, but in particular, fuel subsidies on the rise. Uh, yeah, they have been booming. Uh, fuel subsidies going through the roof, um, uh, according to the latest figures uh, from the IEA. Uh, we know that there's been tough times uh, for uh, the energy sector uh, in recent uh, years. But this, they're, they're recording their, their largest subsidies to date. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's a trillion dollars, wasn't it? It was a trillion dollars. Um, there was too many zeros to account for there. Trillion dollars for the first time ever. Uh, why? Because of the pressure that's been felt on the energy sectors, etc. Therefore, subsidies going through the roof. And the IEA um, obviously recording that one. So uh, we had that one. Also, that EDF story that came through the French... Uh, energy giant posting their worst ever results. BP, uh, ExxonMobil, others around the world. Uh, British Gas uh, reporting record numbers. Not EDF. No, no. Far too many high-vis jackets over there for that to happen. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, they, of course, had that capped price, which was brought in right at the beginning um, of the uh, Ukraine-Russia war. And then, we're, therefore, uh, we have seen that result in a 17.9 billion euro loss for the French energy giant EDF. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. And Dubai taking a couple of the top spots and near top spots in yet another property list. This time, the list is from Savills, and it's looking at things like capital value growth in the prime market. Very pleased to be joined by Swapnil Pillai, who is the Associate Director of Research and Advisory at Savills this morning. Swapnil, it's lovely to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be back in the uh, studio again, Brandy. Thank you very much. Before we get started, what are you guys at Savills counting as prime property? Where do you draw the borders? Yeah, so for the purpose of this report, we are looking at uh, properties that are priced about 3,000 dirhams a square foot as prime uh, residential properties. But it also includes a lot of these larger villas, which are 10 million dirhams and above uh, uh, in terms of their pricing. Right. So we're looking at how those properties are moving. And Dubai and Miami have seen the highest level of capital growth in 2022. What exactly have we seen? Yeah, so for uh, for this report, this is our flagship uh, annual publication where we look at capital value trends across 30 global cities. And uh, Dubai is one of them. And uh, last time when we looked at this report, Dubai was among the top three cities in terms of capital value increases. And this time around, we are among the top two cities. Uh, growing by around 12.4% uh, uh, in terms of capital value increases compared to Miami, which has grown by around 25% uh, on an annual basis. Yeah, I was interested in the fact that, like you say, we came in number two. 
And we've seen half the rate of growth of Miami. That's quite a big difference. Yeah, but we have seen substantial uh, increases uh, in the property prices uh, last year. So I think on the back of that, if you look at, I was speaking to, maybe I spoke to uh, Richard uh, three years ago in 2020. And at that point in time, the per square foot uh, property prices were around 530 US dollars. And this time around it is 730 US dollars. So we have seen a 30% increase on average across uh, the prime residential sector. So we have seen that substantial increase in pricing over the last two years. Right. And we are double what Singapore is again, coming in at number three. Again, there's quite a big jump between your top three. Yeah, so we are seeing a lot more demand uh, specifically in cities like Dubai, which are seeing a lot more supply coming into that prime residential segment. And that is why we have out, uh, you know, outperformed a lot of these other global cities in terms of the capital values as well as the rental rental market. Yeah, and we'll get into the rental in a second. But you guys have pointed to lack of stock as one of the things that has been pushing up these uh, these numbers, the, the capital growth. When do you expect that to ease? How long can that last? So we still have a substantial amount of development pipeline across the prime residential sector. Just to give you an example, this time uh, in 2022, we have seen a 150% increase in the total number of transactions for property priced above 4,000 dirhams uh, a foot and above which is quite significant when you look at other global markets. That kind of highlights that there is still a lot of appetite for prime residential properties and there is still a lot of supply that is being introduced into the market to kind of cater to this demand. So we might see this increase from a longer term perspective. We've seen quite a lot of villa developments being launched in this segment, though, recently by developers. I feel like every second day I get an email uh, inviting me to you know, look at buying a villa in what curiously have been a lot of farm and valley uh, themed developments. When is the, the glut going to start? I think in some of the markets, we're already starting to see that. Say, for example, Palm Jumeirah, most of the developments have been built out. There is limited land parcels available there. So we're seeing prices increase dramatically across Palm Jumeirah. But we are seeing some of these uh, newer developments coming across, uh, Al Qudra Corridor coming across, uh, Maidan and the downtown, uh, not the downtown area, but that D3, uh, the, the, the D3 area. So we're seeing a lot of supply coming into those areas. But some of the built up areas like Palm Jumeirah, your Springs Meadows, your Embrace Hills are, are, are seeing that price increases. Okay, well, if we look at rents, you've had rents outperforming capital value growth here in this report. Talk me through that equation. Yeah, so the increase in uh, lending rates across the world are kind of differing a lot of these uh, high value investors also to look at buying property. So they're preferring to rent right now. And the fact that a lot of the primary transactions or the first transactions across uh, the prime uh, segment has happened uh, in 2022 indicates that a lot of these people are preferring to buy offline right now and waiting for the next two or three years for these developments to be handed over. And some of these newer developments are much better in terms of the specs that they offer, in terms of the qualities, in terms of uh, how exclusive they are. So a lot of these people are preferring to wait and, you know, buy in something that will be handed over in the next two or three years. And does that mean that in two or three years we will see rents in the prime sector drop as people move into their own homes? No, so I think we are seeing a steady increase in population as well. So if you look at Dubai, the population is around 3.5 million residents as of now. So we still have a substantial headroom for the population to grow as well. Uh, there are reports by other consultancy firms that indicate that the UAE in general will see a lot more HNI migration. Oxford Economics, for example, predicts that there will be uh, 50,000 households, uh, you know, in the 250,000 US dollar bracket in the next seven years. So we'll see a lot 
lot more HNI is moving into the city, which should drive uh, capital values as well as rental values going forward. Well, you might have partly answered uh, one of the questions I had looking at your report, which is that you are predicting that a lot of the prime markets are going to slow down, possibly substantially, this year. But Dubai and Singapore are two that you point at as potentially bucking this trend. Why us? Yeah, so in 2021, we saw an average 6.1% increase in capital values globally. 2023, uh, sorry, 2022, this was 3.2%. And going forward, we are expecting an average increase of only 0.5% globally. Uh, but like I said, Dubai continues to be among the only few cities which uh, is going to see that 6 to 8% increase on an average across the prime residential market. This is purely because of the fact that the economy here is doing really well. Uh, we are seeing a lot of people moving in here because of the high quality of uh, living that the city has to offer. The relatively affordable per square foot value for prime residential properties in Dubai. That uh, And then also the cost of ownership of a, of a $2 million plus property, which is around 7% in Dubai compared to a Singapore, which is 35%, or in New York, which is around 18%. What do you mean by cost of ownership? The cost of buying or more than that? So cost of buying, cost of maintaining the property, and also the cost of selling. So the overall, like it includes uh, things like a stamp duty, it includes things like a property tax, etc. And that actually is, is one of the things that we have puzzled here on the, the business breakfast. So square this for me. We're seeing all this growth. We're seeing all these price records being set. Your report is in no way unique. It feels like every third day we're saying that Dubai has topped some list for property prices or growth in property prices. And yet people are also saying, oh, but it's actually really cheap comparatively. Yeah, so like I said, on a per square foot basis, we are around uh, 730 US dollars per per square foot, which is the fourth uh, most affordable market uh, globally. And if you compare it to Singapore, for example, which is around $1,800 and Hong Kong, for example, which is $4,000. So from that perspective, Dubai still appeals to a lot of people uh, because it is, uh, at the end of the day, a wealth preservation uh, sort of an asset, uh, the prime residential market. And a lot of people see that there is still headroom for the prime residential segment to grow going forward. So will it? What's your gut sense on this? What's your Scooby sense? Are we going to continue to remain a bargain or are we at a tipping point where our prices start leveling up with the rest of the world? So across the prime residential sector, I think if you look at some of these locations where these projects are coming up, most of the land parcels are kind of dried out. Uh, uh, there could be limited inventory coming up pro- across some of these locations. So I think the prices should hold steady. And the fact that we are seeing a lot more uh, wealthy individuals move to this city, uh, I think that should kind of uh, help the price stability as well as a bit of a growth going forward. Swapnil Palai is Associate Director of Research and Advisory for Savills in discussing a new report suggesting um, that Dubai is topping or at least coming near the top of yet another list of uh, property records. This one is for capital value growth. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Talking takeovers now, in particular Middle East sporting takeovers because this football team is on the block. Fernandez frees Marcus Rashford. That was Marcus Rashford about 12 hours ago, scoring for Manchester United, my favourite football team. And on Friday, bids were submitted to buy it. The asking price is above $5 billion, and one of the bidders is Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani, the chairman of one of Qatar's biggest banks, confirming that his foundation will bid to buy Manchester United. Joining us now on the line is someone who knows a lot about the business of sport. Andrew Moroni is a sports and entertainment lawyer at the global law firm Squire Patton Boggs, based 
here in Dubai, formerly legal counsel at the English Football Association. Andrew, good morning. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. Morning, Richard. Thanks for having me back on. So let's take a step back. Why would a banker in Qatar look to spend more than $5 billion on a football club in the north of England? Well, uh, it's a very good question um, and one that a lot of people are putting their minds to in the last few days. But I think like all bidders and uh, investors in, in sports properties, they're obviously see, they, they are doing it because they see a value proposition there. Um, so in the case of a football club, obviously in the case of Manchester United specifically, with 1.1 billion fans and followers, I think bidders will be thinking there's a fair bit of uh, ways that they could commercialise and monetize that following. Well, no one's been able to do it before because Manchester United, despite these reported one billion supporters, do about half a billion dollars a year in revenue. That's about 50 cents per supporter. And they've lost money for the past three years. Doesn't sound like a great investment to me. Well, it's a fair point too. Yeah, I think about $600 million revenue in the last financial year with $160 million loss is is not particularly rosy figures. But going back to that 1.1 billion uh, followers number, a 50 cents a fan is obviously low. Um, and I was reading a, some research done by uh, Kieran Maguire, who's an expert in football finance at, at Liverpool University. And his take on it is that that's low, but if you can get it up to sort of a, a dollar per fan per year, then you're looking at a multi-billion uh, dollar um, company. And therefore, there's a huge amount of untapped potential there. And I think that's what investors will be looking at particularly. There's another big Premier League football club up for sale at the moment, which is Liverpool Football Club. Do we know about any interest from the Middle East in Liverpool Football Club? I think this, the same kind of names have been banded around. And it's, it's difficult to know how much the gossip around football, and obviously there is a, an enormous amount of gossip just generally week to week in football, how much we can actually uh, believe. But it, obviously the, the, the names of the public investment fund in Saudi, um, various Qatari consortiums have been put in, both in respect of Liverpool and Manchester United, and then actually my own clubs, Tottenham, uh, the Qataris were linked with Spurs too this weekend. So it's difficult to know how much of it is hype or how much of it is perhaps even coming from the, uh, the seller side in terms of driving up the number that ultimately will be, ultimately be agreed between their parties. But yeah, I mean, it's fair to say there's always Middle East names connected with Premier League properties that are up for sale or touted for sale. Is there a danger that investors from the Middle East who come in now and buy a Premier League football club might have missed the boat? We know Sheikh Mansour bought Manchester City 15 or so years ago for around about $200 million. It's now valued by Forbes at around $3 billion. So he's had a return on investment. Yes, he's pumped money into the club through uh, acquisitions of players and so on. But from $200 million to, to $3 billion is quite a leap. But surely no one buying a club now is going to get that kind of upside if they're paying $5 billion or so. I mean, it does seem hard to visualise. I guess in the recent times, we've seen Newcastle go to the Saudi Public Investment Fund for just over 300 billion, uh, 300 million rather, um, which seems a bit of a snip compared to what's been touted as at least 5 billion for Manchester United. I think the benchmark for these acquisitions these days is the sort of four and a half billion dollars that was paid for Chelsea last year. Um, that was a three billion dollar cash in, um, investment plus a guaranteed investment of a further 1.5 or so billion into various bits of infrastructure and, and associated uh, aspects. But it does seem that Newcastle looked cheap. Um, and I'd hope, I'd expect that the Saudis would be fairly happy with their investment into Newcastle, given what's happened on the pitch this season. Um, and Manchester United at 5 billion, it, it just depends how, how much you 
you uh, add value and a portion value to the off-field commercialization of the properties. Um, but yeah, I mean, whether it's too late remains to be seen. But um, I would still say that sports uh, investments in sports clubs, particularly Premier League teams, it, there is still value to be had there um, it, it, as long as you can get the fundamentals right and commercialise those assets uh, uh, in an appropriate way. A lot of the focus at the moment is on European football clubs. Of course, Qatar already owns Paris Saint-Germain in the French League. The Premier League is a big focus as well, as you mentioned. A, a lot of Middle East ownership in the Premier League already. Are there any other leagues or sports or franchises, to use the American word, that they're looking at in North America, in Asia, different sports? Or is it very much European football at the moment that's the focus? Well, another focus is obviously European football, as you say. And a lot of that centres around the Premier League, mainly because of the huge broadcasting rights uh, cycles that the Premier League can generate. So $10 billion over the next, uh, in this current three-year broadcasting cycle is hugely attractive to investors because they can see that they're essentially guaranteed uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a, y- a year just for the broadcasting rights before they even get to the match day revenues and sponsor revenues. But I mean, last year we saw Chelsea go, I was to say, $4.5 billion. But we also saw Denver Broncos and the, uh, an NFL team go for around about the same. And those two are, have kind of set the bar, the benchmark, if you like, at sort of nudging $5 billion, which I think is how the Glazers are probably arriving at that valuation of sort of $5 billion or so. Um, so... It seems like Premier League clubs are valued in a much this, very similar way to sort of North American franchise teams. Um, and I'd imagine that the, the suitors for the Premier League clubs that have been mentioned in recent times are probably equally looking at North American franchises too. Final question from me. One of the things that surprised me over the past 10 years is that no Middle East investor, particularly the UAE, has tried or succeeded to buy an Indian Premier League cricket franchise. Cricket, massive, obviously, globally. Massive connections to this part of the world. We've got so much cricket played here, including the IPL on a couple of occasions. Why do you think that hasn't happened and, and any prospect that it might in the coming years? We've got about a minute left on that. Sure. I mean, I see it, I see it as, as likely. Um, there was obviously close cultural connections between the UAE and, and India, and therefore it seemed an obvious uh, cross-sell. Um, just historically, Indian Premier League teams have been acquired by um, wealthy Indian uh, business people. Uh, and we've seen a recent trend towards uh, private equity companies um, looking to enter that space too. Um, with I think CVC bought the Gujarat Titans recently. Um, so I, I can see how there's a shift towards that. And certainly what we're seeing in, in the Indian Premier League is, again, very chunky broadcasting rights fees that are, are regularly renewed for um, in amounts that far exceed the previous cycle. So I would see that if, if it's a pure investment case and if, if, if sovereign wealth funds here are looking for an ROI, then that can that can and should make an IPL teams an attractive proposition to, to local investors. Andrew, great talk. Do you appreciate your time this morning? Joining us live on Microsoft Teams. A wise move, Andrew. If you're a Spurs fan, your guys beat uh, Tom's team West Ham 2-0 last night, so it's probably just as well you're not in the studio. Andrew Maroney is a sports lawyer at Squire Patton Boggs. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we're talking about the world of work. Come Monday morning, I'm the first to arrive. I ain't Finish off from nine to five. I'm a hard, hard working man. 
People are going to be working hard at Amazon from the 1st of May because the boss, Andy Jassy, has said you must come to the work most of the time and at least three days a week. Going to get the thoughts of one workplace strategist shortly. But first of all, let's hear from Dr. Amanda Nyman-Peters. She is a behavioural scientist and professor of leadership at Holt International Business School in Dubai. She says the move by Amazon is part of a long-term response to hybrid working. To put this into the perspective of a widespread trend... The disruption of the past few years was also a huge opportunity to test new working models. So we had pre-2020 when office work was mostly unquestioned. And then, of course, almost two years when remote work was largely unquestioned. And then 2022 with really a hodgepodge of approaches that weren't planned, but were more like unintentional evolutions. And that's evidenced in the fact that before this announcement, individual team managers could decide what was best for their teams. I mean, that might suit some team leaders with the skills to make those decisions, but it would have left many other team leaders without any guidance on what is best practice. So what we're seeing here is an example of a large multinational basically re-equilibrating its policies into a sustainable long-term approach to hybrid working. We've got a poll going on Instagram this morning asking you the question, in your view, which works best? Three options, work from home, office full-time or hybrid and it's roughly split three ways down the middle. Joining us in the studio to give us some perspective on this is Oliver Baxter, founder and the owner of Workplace Maven. It is a workplace strategy specialist organisation. Oliver, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me back. So if you were going to be voting in this poll, work from home, office full-time or hybrid, which one would you have clicked? I base my opinions on kind of what the data is saying right now. So I would go with hybrid. It seems to be the, the, the winning horse in the race so far. Okay. Why do you say that? Okay. So if we compare data from year on year and quarter from quarter from, say, the Future Forum as an example, we see that actually people's preference for working fully remote or fully in office is actually coming down. And the majority of people seem to want to go with the hybrid solution. We also have a couple of misnomers, which has been highlighted in the uh, the Amazon statement around hybrid working, saying that uh, it might not necessarily be good for culture or for productivity, when actually the opposite is true. So if, again, if we look at the last quarter data from the Future Forum, we see a 57% spike in culture in those organizations that actually have hybrid, an 8% improvement in productivity. And if you actually have flight, uh, schedule flexibility, then you get a 39% spike in productivity. So you've got to remember, hybrid isn't just about the where, it's also about the when you work. It's schedule and location we've got to take into consideration. Well, if we look at what Andy Jassy is saying, and this is for office staff at Amazon, it seems to me that it is a kind of hybrid model. He wants you in there most of the time. That's not all of the time. You've got to clock in at eight and leave at six. And yeah. he, he suggests three days a week is a minimum. But that's still... I would define that as hybrid. Would you define that as hybrid? Yeah, Nick Bloom from Stanford would describe that as structured hybrid. You've also got fully flexible as well. So that's people who are in the office less than 50% of the week, which is actually where Amazon were before. They were in two days a week predominantly. And they have some really good working culture as well, and it's getting better. They have some of the best paternity leave actually in the region as well at, at six weeks. So I think this is probably a little bit of a step back for Amazon in comparison to where they were a year or, or two years ago in terms of that flexible strategy. It's going to impact me and Brandy and Tom because Amazon are in the floor above us here in Media City. So the car park's going to be a little bit busier, although we do get in before most people around about 5, 5.30. So we, we, we should be all right on that. Well, let's look at some of the breakdowns, some of the things that Andy Jassy of Amazon says the office helps with. He says, for example, 
Uh, collaborating and inventing is easier and more effective when we're in person. The energy and riffing on one another's ideas happen more freely. He says a lesser known fact is that some of the best inventions have had their breakthrough moments from people staying behind in a meeting and working through ideas on a whiteboard or just walking back to an office together on the way back from a meeting or just popping by a teammate's office. That, is that a myth or reality? What does the to use your phrase, the data tell us. No, that, that's absolutely a reality, and I completely agree with those statements, but that's not all of the time in all instances. Many people actually like to ponder a problem on their own before they bring it to the group. Brandy was talking about introverts earlier on. That's the demographic that prefers to do that. Typically, when you're in a meeting, you're just going to hear the voices from the extroverted people like me, and then when that meeting finishes and the tension of the, uh, of the social situation reduces, actually you start to get those ideas coming in that riffing fashion, as you mentioned, from the, from the introverts. So you get some really good ideas after the meeting has finished and also before the meeting starts because it takes that social pressure away. We heard from Dr. Amanda Nyman-Peters of Holt Business School, and she said one of the potential risks of doing this, of having what you call structured hybrid at least three days a week, being more dictatorial most of your time in the office, is that you can lose some staff. Because if the tech company down the road is offering a far more flexible form of hybrid and the same salary, everything else is equal, but one company is offering proper hybrid and the other one is something more rigid, you lose the staff. Is, is that a clear and present danger? It is. If you look at Hayworth's data from their Spark Insight series, um, you'll see that 80% of the under 35s have like hybrid working, flexible working as their number one priority. And they're willing to leave if that's not on, on the table, at least for consideration. Um, we know that the tech industry is actually leading the charge on this. 80% of tech firms are actually in that flexible model. So in the office for less than uh, 50% of the time. So actually Amazon have just moved out into that structured hybrid phase and moved out of the fully flexible phase, bucking the trend of tech firms uh, in, that, in that segment. How different is it here in Dubai or different parts of the Middle East to, say, Silicon Valley? Rightly or wrongly, I've got this idea in my head that a lot of bosses like to see their staff in the office. If I'm paying you a salary, I want to see you in at eight and I don't want you to leave until six. Is that a myth? No, it's reality. It's the command and control culture that we have over here. Um, and I don't think it's doing very well for the talent. We know that we have such a transient talent here anyway. We have one of the biggest brain drains in, in the world just because so many people are moving in and out of the country for, for whatever reason. But then if you couple that with uh, working cultures that don't fit in with the rest of the world, you get lots of people job hopping in different industries as well. It's, it's, it's a really big issue for our industry. And it costs about 160,000 dirhams over the course of two years to train up a new hire. So if you're looking at your people as ones and zeros on a balance sheet, please take that into consideration that training people, there is a cost to that as well. Finally, what does all this mean for the way that we design workspaces? Well, I would say that they're going to need significantly more private spaces when they come into the office so that they can do focused work. For Amazon on the floor above you, they're probably going to need to start taking more space again. There's going to be a cost involved with that. Um, those spaces for long duration collaboration we're going to have to redefine those. Short duration, we're happy to jump on a call you know, for, for an hour or two. Anything longer than that, then you get Teams tiredness or Zoom fatigue. So we're going to have to rethink those collaborative spaces, those individual focus booths, not just dedicated for seniority, but open and accessible to all. And then we could probably reduce a number of the desks and chairs in the space. We could pre-pandemic. We really should be able to do that post-pandemic. We don't need a desk and a chair for every single employee in the office. Oliver, thanks very much indeed for joining us this morning. As ever, appreciate your insights. Oliver Baxter is the founder and owner of Workplace Maven. 
You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.